Live from New York City, it's the Dream Shakers Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Odom, here with my co-host, George Nunez. And we'll be covering the latest news across the themes of culture, technology, venture capital, and professional development. Yes, sir. Let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer. None of our commentary or our opinions have nothing to do with you potentially buying stocks in the market. So we just wanted to put it out there. Do your own research. Now back to the podcast. The retail traders or or retail investors, rather, Mm. have had enough Mm. and they took a a stand and they want revenge Mm. from these guys on Wall Street, from these corporate boys that are literally profiting. Mm-hmm. And it took an online community to make this happen. Mm-hmm. All for one, one for all. That's a bar. What's going on here, Steph? <laughs> well, you know, this is a uh, it's an interesting event. It is a moment in history for sure. You know, uh, we have we have stocks like GameStop and AMC that are through the roof right now. And largely due to the actions of one Reddit subreddit called Wall Street Bets, right? Like this is where the whole story starts. And the tale can really be tied back to one individual. And his name is Keith Gill. Now, now Keith is a- Keith Gill. Keith Gill. He coming, he coming for everybody, coming for the whole industry, respectfully. He's a chartered financial analyst and former employee at Mutual Life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's he's really the person that really got this moving. And largely the way that he did this was by initially sharing the fact that he thought firms were betting against GameStop a little too heavily. Right, a little too heavily. This is all the way back in June of 2019 when the short calls on GameStop were massive and Keith had already begun to have some success in betting against these short calls. Now, this space, the Wall Street Bets, Wall Street Bets was started in 2012 by Jamie Rogozinski. While he was working as an IT. Rogo who? Rogo Zinski. That's what we're going with. My fault. If, um, you know, that's a little off, but let's just call him Jamie R. Jamie R. Okay. Got this off the ground in 2012 while he was working as an IT consultant. And the, this was really supposed to be a place where, you know, investors could come together that were taking on, you know, a more risky approach to investing these were going to be individuals that understood that this was going to be high risk, but they also understood that, you know, potentially it could be high reward. Now, when we come back to the role of Keith, what he was doing on these this subreddit was he was sharing both his gains and his losses. And this got people in, interested, got them interested into the stock and ultimately is what led to this 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 intensity around taking down the established players on Wall Street. Once enough people got behind this thing and and really once they were able to take out the first player in the form of of Melvin Capital, that's when you started to see the news reports. That's when you started to see GameStop jump from $150 at the closing of one day to $330 at the closing of another day. That's when you started to get this attention from platforms like Robinhood. You started to get financial regulators like the SEC involved. You started to get call outs from uh, members of Congress like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or on the other side of the aisle, Ted Cruz. This is where all of this really began to take on a life of its own. Even with individuals like Elon Musk repeatedly tweeting about the performance of GameStop on social media platforms like Twitter, right? So this just kind of gives you the background of how do we get to this moment? What led up to these events? But but George, I know you have some more information regarding what was happening and occurring in these spaces, especially in regards to some of the trading platforms that these investors were using? Honestly, there was just a lot going on here. There were a lot of players involved. You can look at Robinhood. 
it, they went as far as to bring social media into this. I mean, they, they were they were waiting for Fabulous to drop some bars. Like they were like when they was robbing the hood, they prayed to the stocks. Now the hood robbing them. They try to make the game stop. Mm. See, if you didn't get that, you was not there. I mean, it it was just a lot going on. Institutional investors like BlackRock caught a bag from this. Mm -hmm. Silver Lake Partners ran away with this. A lot of people turned into Twitter fingers. They were like free to traders on Robin Hood. Mm. And as you mentioned, politicians weighed in on Robin Hood like AOC and Ted Cruz. So it's just been interesting. They called it the meme stocks, but let me dive in. So the biggest thing was Robin Hood as of late and how they caught flat because they were restricting stocks because the value of those stocks shot up. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what made them commit that or place that decision. A lot of people believe that it was something or something had to do with their investors backing them. Mm-hmm. The hedge funds. One of those investors, yeah, the hedge funds, one, one of the key ones, primary ones was Citadel. Mm. Right. As they lost as a major player and lost a lot of money <laughs> while shorting the stock or, or participating in the short squeeze, which I, I'll let you have at it on that in a bit, Steph. But it's been it's been crazy because these guys have been playing this game for years, centuries, even the existence of the stock market. We talk about market manipulation. <laughs> that That's what. That's what caused this, right? That, that that's what that's what birthed the SEC. That's how the SEC got involved. Mm. But now, when online communities and retail investors and retail traders get involved, all of a sudden, it's a problem now. Right? It, it's a problem when they come together and, and they invest in stocks like GameStop and AMC, who like they weren't really under anyone's radar, and for some reason, they got whiff that. These hedge funds were shorting the stock and they're like, all right, cool. We're going to combat that by uh, raising the stock with our own willpower and buying up more shares. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I do believe that um, this, for me, this speaks to eye for an eye. And I definitely see the, the people taking that power back, right? I also noticed that because of because of Robin Hood placing this restriction, they also got hit with not one, but two lawsuits, man. Mm-hmm. Two lawsuits, class, class actions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, class action lawsuits. And I do believe that while um, that occurred, there there is this there is this notion that um, they will possibly get away with this l- lawsuit because within the user agreement, if you clearly read it on their website, mm-hmm. it states that may at any time in its sole discretion without prior notice to me prohibit or restrict my ability to trade securities. So they, so uh... they, 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 they created this <laughs> underlying thing or, or this underlying statement Mm-hmm. that many people overlooked mm-hmm. and f- for whatever reason they could just shut down your trades stop your account if they think something suspicious going on for whatever that that level of speculation or suspicion could arise mm-hmm. right but that doesn't change the fact that this sort of puts a dent in Robin Hood's brand a bit now. yes major while they raised a billion dollars right from from uh, investors and they also increase their credit lines. I do believe that there's a possibility that retail investors could switch mm-hmm. and they'll go to alternatives. Mm-hmm. They'll possibly look at a, an alternative like a Webull, right? Or a TD Ameritrade or oh, M1 Finance. Mm-hmm. Or, or, yep, absolutely. 
or even moo moo. Like like there's there's alternatives that people will seriously look at because of what happened or what occurred through these last couple of days, Steph. And again, I think it's it's interesting. I do like the idea that these on this online community, Wall Street Bets, took that onus on themselves mm-hmm. to fight against what's currently happening. Um, and it, it's funny because they actually got so vulgar on a platform. So apparently they used the subdivision of Reddit, right? Uh, as a, as a way to communicate, but then they, they got even creative with it Mm -hmm. and they took their conversations on the app called discord for the reoccurring listeners. We talked about discord a while back. They took their, they took their, communication or conversations on Discord and actually started to have live dialogue. So it felt as if you were in a freaking trading room. And because of that, Discord partially banned them for a few days for for the uh, vulgar language, (laughs) but they end up coming back. So yeah, I I do believe that uh, it's extremely um, interesting how people took the power and onus on themselves. the hedge funds, I, I mean, I, I do want to see how the SEC comes in and they steps in, they step in and regulate more mm-hmm. in regards to market manipulation. Um, Silver, Silver Lake is, is one of the funds that have benefited a lot because they dumped shares of roughly $713 million, mm. right? And profited 113 million off of their initial investment. Crazy. <laughs> and uh, BlackRock had also profited as well. So, I mean, I, I'm going to hand it back to you, Steph, to talk about the the short squeeze as, as you mentioned. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's just a lot, a lot going on here. And and, and before I pass it off too. Um, there was also an interview or, or a dialogue going back and forth between Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo's brother, who don't who people don't know, and he's a live reporter on TNN. And he interviewed Vlad Tenev, who's the CEO of Robinhood, and he was just going back and forth with him and asking him, "Well, what was the the process behind uh, Robinhood's decision to place these restrictions?" Oh well, you know we. His response was, well, well, we had some financial obligations or or we had to figure out how we can go about our financial limitations. Okay, can can you elaborate? Like, what's going on? Oh, well, we had some financial requirements we had to abide to. He just literally kept saying the same thing, but it it just wasn't going anything. And that it wasn't going anywhere. And that just goes to show he was literally dodging the questions because he knew it was sketchy. It was fishy. And the truth of the matter is, is that the the corporate dollars and and the the big dollars prevailed in this one for him. So he had to he had to listen up to those big boy hedge fund guys over there. Back to you, Steph. One thing before I delve back into this short. Or, or the meaning of shorting and, you know, what, what a short squeeze is. I think what's interesting to note is that, you know, when this became very apparent that this was no longer a matter of, you know, exploiting or not exposing, uh, exploiting, but exposing a miscalculation by hedge funds, but actually trying to burn hedge funds in the, fir- in the form of uh, hitting them where it hurts the most, their pockets, the subreddit Wall Street Bets made sure to issue a statement to the individuals that were visiting the page. And that was like, hey, you know, at this point, it can go one or two ways, right? Like we could we could come out on top and everything can go real rosy or, you know, it could all go left. It could all go left. Everyone could sell their shares and that stock price could plummet like a rock off of the top of the Empire State Building. I mm. think I think that first and foremost shows a, a certain level of responsibility and, and and foresight by the creators of the, the subreddit. But also it allows individuals to know that at this point it is essentially gambling and you shouldn't be putting like your whole life savings behind these plays with the expectation that it's just going to continue to rise uh 
to a thousand dollars, which is what the benchmark was set at at that point on the on the subreddit. So so definitely props to them on that front. Um, but in any instance, on to what is shorting. What does this mean? Well, in a very basic sense, what it means is that an individual borrows five shares, right? They borrow five shares from someone else and they believe that the value of those five shares is likely to decrease. So because of this, they immediately sell, or not immediately, but they sell the shares at the going rate, right? They receive the profits from those shares and then they wait, right? Because this this usually happens within a period that you're allowed to borrow these shares. They wait for the stock price to drop. They then repurchase those five shares and they return them to the individuals that they borrowed them from and they get to keep the difference, right? The way that you burn a short seller is if the price never drops, right? So if the individual sells the sells the shares and then the price spikes, right? Well, they still have to they still have to return those shares. So now they have to return those shares at this new higher price point, right? So when they purchase the shares back, there's no profit to be had. They've just incurred a loss. However, when they do this, especially when you do this on the level of a hedge fund and the amount of shares that they had uh, that, 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 that they had to fulfill, right? And, and return to the individuals that they borrowed them from, um, you begin to push the price of the stock higher and higher. You end up burning over short sellers who then join into the frenzy. And that's how you begin to create or short squeeze, right? It's all of these individual actors uh, combining and buying up these shares in vast sums so as to minimize their losses, right? So if you're one of the individuals like, you know, Wall Street Bits, for example, um, who's who's been able to come in at, in, in certain instances, as little as $5, you really stand to benefit if the price of these shares go up to right? Um, So Mm -hmm. this is kind of what leads to the extreme prices that we've been seeing from just just the perspective of like a bind standard, like watching this all happen in real time. Um, And also is what has allowed these individuals on the subreddit to be able to take on these massive profits in the instance that they do opt to sell their shares. But that is a very, very high level explanation of of shorting and, and a short squeeze. But George, I know you have something else to mention here in regards to to margin, which is another topic um, that Robinhood uh, uh, cited as well in regards to a reason why they had to prevent individuals from selling or or being able to purchase options. Yes, absolutely stuff. So uh, they just recently raised the requirements to or to or to allow people to engage in options and margins. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they did that is because they noticed that a lot of people that participated in uh, options and margins were misinformed and just weren't thoroughly weren't thoroughly aware or or haven't done proper due diligence behind options and margins and so uh robin hood just realized all right because people don't know how to do this and uh they are losing a crap ton of money that we borrowed them and they <laughs> and they're not able to pay it back let's just raise the requirements so that we know people are aware um and people that can participate in this uh are more than capable mm-hmm. so i i think that was a, a right call for them to to make that happen but besides that i mean it, it is definitely Sad to see. I mean, they also learned their lesson from a, a Robin Hood trader that had died or committed suicide a year ago mm-hmm. uh, because they had um, participated in, in margins and they got to the point where they just weren't able to pay any of that money back and they realized, oh, okay, well, um, I'm, I'm just going to end it here. But uh, it's unfortunate. 
I'm glad that they learned from that, but more so learned from this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I, I'm, I'm just excited to see what plays out. Solid, solid. I think these are, are all valid points, and we'll see where it goes. You know, maybe GameStop hits a thousand, uh, maybe it hits five hundred. We, you know, not gonna really be able to tell until markets open back up on on Monday of next week. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and pivot into the next topic and you know this one is really something new maybe something the people have had the chance to engage with maybe maybe they don't really have the friends that are tapped in to allow them to be able to engage with this platform but clubhouse raises a new 100 million dollar series b round led by anderson howitz how are you feeling about this topic george I think it's spicy. I think it's definitely interesting. While people are excited to hear about this, there was definitely some controversy going on. Even even Master P, uh, the entertainer slash rapper slash investor, came out and he said that black people have drove that valuation up, uh, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, but but that that seems like it could be the case, right? Like a, a lot of people tend to go on, host events and, or, or even host information sessions. So it's just interesting to see uh, how it, how it goes, but the clubhouse, the founders are Paul Davison and Rohan Seth, and it's a San Francisco based startup more so an audio social network and right now or as of last week they have been able to obtain roughly two million users which is very remarkable and i think that a lot of that has to do with uh covid like this is the covid effect that we've been speaking to over these past couple of episodes and the fact that they've been able to get to that experience or get to that exposure is is very remarkable, very interesting. Um, and it also brings it also plays into this whole social media thing, right? Like like people want to have that level of clout. People want to have that particular brand. So that is a way for people to market and promote themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, Clubhouse did something interesting here. And this was perfect timing. They may be on to something with the next re- evolution or <laughs> revolution of social networking. <laughs> Before it was AIM, MySpace. Then it was Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And now we have Clubhouse, a social audio app where people can just literally talk. <laughs> To one another and not even um, see face-to-face contact. So I think this may spur up other startups mm-hmm. that want to play in this space and give them a a run for their money or or uh, competition. But I definitely see them as a first mover, and I'll pass it back to you, Steph, to to speak on it a bit more. Yeah, I think what's interesting to note here is that. Clubhouse is a new offering and they have big, bold, aspirational plans for the future. Now, this $100 million that they've received this round is going to go into three spaces. It's going to go into the expansion of the service. It's going to go into things like creator payments, and it's also going to go into moderation. Now, with the expansion of the service, the Clubhouse app has only been available for individuals that have iPhones, which which makes sense is because, you know, we, we team iPhone. But no, on, on a serious note, <laughs> this impedes Clubhouse's ability to reach a broader set of users, especially beyond the U.S., where the dominance of uh, Apple and Android actually flips. So the aim is to have a new offering that's live and available on Android devices later this, this year. And In terms of creator payments, the service plans to roll out additions 
right? That retain content creators on the platform. So similar to something that you were actually mentioning around Master P, the, the aim here is to be able to reward some of those individuals that have been able to build followings on Clubhouse uh, monetarily such that they can continue to provide content um, and also receive value from from this time that they're spending on the service. Additionally, Clubhouse itself will take a percentage of the fees that are provided to these content creators. So whether that's something like the form of tipping or tickets or subscription, uh, Clubhouse is going to take a, a small fee on top of that. And that's going to be another way that the service is able to gain cash flow without having to introduce things like advertisements. Now, lastly is moderation. Clubhouse is very unique in that there isn't content, right? Like there is content in the form of audio dialogue, but there isn't, you know, you don't have comments. You don't really have, you know, video that's being shared. It's no- You can't DM. You can't DM, right? Like none of those things exist on Clubhouse. So the way that- individuals interact is all dynamic is all in real time and there's no there's no stores of of this content so what has happened in the past however is because of this individuals have been able to go out there and say some uh, pretty wild things and this has led to stories around vocal abuse on the platform which has been a potential risk or a very large risk for the platform moving forward. So they are going to be putting capital aside this round to effectively detect, address, and prevent verbal abuse. Now, in terms of you know who else out there is Clubhouse competing with, you've made mention that, yes, we're, we're seemingly entering a new stage in regards to the ways social media allows us to interact with one another. And there are other offerings out there in the market that also provide more dynamic ways for you to engage with your, you know, your friends, your family, or just, you know, random strangers in the world. Um, one is House Party, which is another app that allows you to engage with a broad set of users. And Twitter, as of right now, is creating a space, uh, or rather is creating an offering internally called Spaces, which in some ways borrows fairly heavily from Clubhouse in that it's a room-based environment. Um, You have the opportunity to uh, mute or unmute participants. And there is the capacity to uh, create these rooms where you can have, you know, meaningful discussions. Right now, those experiences are capped at 10 person or 10 people a room, uh, which is different than Clubhouse because, you know, sometimes you can have rooms with 50, maybe even 100 people uh, in a room at a, at a given time. Um, but this creates, you know, more intimate one-on-one, you know, closer interactions on Twitter. However, it's still very much a beta feature at this point and it's only been Uh, doled out to, I think, about 400 users on the the entire Twitter platform. They're still experimenting with it. They're still trying to see how this is something that they're going to be able to scale. And I think what they've also realized is much similar to Clubhouse is that this is a very difficult feature to moderate, right? Like, how do you make sure, you know, kids aren't being taken advantage of in these spaces? How do you make sure that individuals aren't using this to, uh, you know, come together to, you know, plan out horrible acts, right? Like all of these different things that are happening in these spaces, how do you effectively moderate these channels? So I think that's also another reason why it stayed relatively small um, to this point. But I think this is something that our audience should be privy to, especially every time there's a new shift in terms of how you can engage with audiences, how you can build a new way to interact with individuals that lie outside of your your normal social circle. There is always great things that can come of this. And especially given Apple's recent stances around the privatization of data and the decision to go into a new space that doesn't see it or or the apps that leverages its network or its services um, rely so heavily on like blanket advertising approaches, I think this is is very interesting because again, it provides you the ability to build your audience, craft your audience and have income 
that comes in from sources that aren't tied to traditional advertisers. But with that, George, is there anything else that you wanted to to add in here? All great points, Steph. I would just add that how does Clubhouse reinvent themselves post-COVID? It's going to be a thing to watch out for because COVID is going to take roughly two to three years for the world to go back to normal. So that might play to their effect. But as people are more social, people are more active, people are outside, people are going back to work and might necessarily not have time to participate in an event. How do they start to reinvent themselves uh, post-COVID? And through the midst of this, do they do they create certain partnerships with corporate firms, tech firms, banks, and possibly in-person or virtual networking events? Right? Like, do do they get into that realm to expand and scale? So, I'm I'm definitely excited to see what they have in the pipeline. But again, they they might be on to something. It might be on something with this app. So kudos to Clubhouse. Yeah, definitely kudos to Clubhouse. And one thing that we forgot to mention was that Clubhouse is still extremely private at this point. So you can't just download the app and set up a profile. You have to be invited by someone. Most people that I know of have been able to find one way or another to get on the app. Um, But if you're still struggling out there and you haven't been able to get on to Clubhouse, reach out to me and George. You know, we can send you we can send you an invite. We can send you the invite. Uh-huh. No problem. No problem. Please reach out. DM us on Instagram. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm Hancho Moves underscore 95. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm Deliberate Thoughts. You just put a little dot between the deliberate and the thoughts, and you're going to be all right. All right? Cool. So with that, we're going to move on to the next segment, which is Welcome to the Culture. And here, we're going to be discussing the latest news across the spaces of media and consumer products, services, and just the general social landscape. So starting things off, we have Francis Messano, who has recently been announced the new president of New Schools Venture Fund. How are you feeling about this one, George? I just want to say congratulations to Francis. She definitely took home a major accomplishment, a major achievement for the city of New York. You know, she's a Brooklyn native, but we have to put another disclaimer in there. It's okay. We still have love for her, but the Bronx is the better borough. But kudos to you. Uh, we're, we're, we're absolutely proud of you. Yeah, I, I think this is amazing, right? Like her, her being... Um, at New Schools Ventures Funds, which is sort of more tailored as a venture philanthropy. She was, you know, she had experience roughly a six-year tenure, to be exact, um, where she had a broad set of responsibilities, including creating a diverse leaders investment strategy, leading the innovative schools team, and developing the content for four summit conferences. And now in this current role, she'll oversee four investment areas, as well as the research and learning team. But just to, just to backtrack, right? Because they always say that somebody's upbringing plays a role into who they are today and where they go. So as I mentioned before, she's a Brooklyn native, but not only that, she participated in a special program called Prep for Prep. And that's that's huge. That's key here. Prep for Prep is a program that that literally gets people at an early age, kids at an early age, and help them go into a particular private school, mm-hmm. right, or or quote unquote boarding school, mm-hmm. and then from there that helps them propel into going into the top universities in the nation. So she noticed the importance of education. Prime example. She got her undergraduate degree in economics from Harvard University. Then after that, she she went into finance because she knew that if she was 
a person of color, if she was a Latina that could hold her own on a trading desk, she could make it anywhere. So she worked for Morgan Stanley and was an equity structure products and derivative sales associate. Then after that, she went into General Mills as a summer associate marketing manager <laughs> or or prior to General Mills, she ended up getting an MBA from Harvard. After that, she ended up working as a summer associate marketing manager. Then she worked for Achievement First as an independent consultant. After that, she worked for Monitor Group, which then got acquired by Deloitte, which I'm going to let Steph chime in here very soon because he's very familiar with monitoring. He's very familiar with Deloitte. After she working as a senior manager for Deloitte, she was a vice president of strategy for TFA, Teach for America. And then she just took off with New Schools Ventures ever since for the past five years. So I am definitely excited for her. Uh, I, I know that this is a long time coming and I, I wanted to pass it over to, to Steph. Yep, def- definitely appreciate the assist there brother. And yes, the work that she did at the Monitor Institute, which is the firm's variant or rather the firm's subgroup that deals with non-profit and socially oriented uh, companies, really, I believe, set the stage for her later work with Teach for America and ultimately New School Ventures, where again, like you were mentioning, she came back in, you know, worked for six years, steadily rose up the ranks and was able to go from managing partner all the way to today, uh, president of the entire fund. Now, this aligns well with her background because again, it's always been a matter of leveraging those opportunities in regards to education to now allow future generations of Black and Latino students to have that same access to resources such that the success of future generations is not left to luck or the kind gestures of a few good individuals in our general society. It's really more a matter of changing the whole entire approach in regards to public education such that the bar in terms of quality can be significantly raised so these children have the ability to succeed and with them, our country more generally. And currently they have funding opportunities available and they're offering roughly $6 million in funding to education innovators looking to open new schools or possibly diversify education leadership. So if you have what it takes, or if you think you meet the criteria, feel free to reach out and and send an email. And just to be clear, the four investment areas that they focus on, which is one, innovative public schools, two, learning solutions to help breakthrough student success, three, diverse leaders to focus on diversity within these fields amongst teachers and parent advocates. Mm-hmm. And the last one, which is for racial equity in seeing how leaders of color can break and address the racial inequities in education. I've definitely seen how the broken educational system affected me. And growing up, that definitely motivated me to uh, persevere and show how I could overcome and climb that as well as stuff. So I'll leave it there. But congrats to Francis on making this this new this new role. Definitely important. Definitely major victory here And, and definitely interested to see how Francis continues to steer new school ventures going forward. And for the next topic, KD, Chris Paul, and Baron Davis makes an investment in Goal Setter. And Goal Setter is trying to take on a financial literacy problem that many kids face. What are your thoughts on this stuff? Yeah, this is actually a really interesting situation here. The company was founded by Tanya 
Vancourt, and she's a former executive at Nickelodeon and ESPN that lost more than a million dollars when the tech bubble burst back in 2001. You know, ever since that moment, she's vowed to teach her own children how to properly handle and manage their finances such that they could avoid similar outcomes. And she's really been committed to this goal, this objective of providing opportunities for children that come from backgrounds of color to be able to access the education such that they can make the right, the correct choices when it comes to the handling of personal finances and doing this in a way that involves the entire family and reorients their perspective or their approach rather to personal finance. So what is the company? What is what is this company that she set up? Goal Setter is a service, again, that teaches financial concepts to children of all ages, helping them learn the tactics and skills necessary to build those financially secure futures I was speaking about. Now, the company has paired up with MasterCard, and this is the way that it's been able to provide its cashola offering. Now, originally the way that the company was set up was that it was largely based around these gold cards, right? And what the gold cards allowed you to do was you were able to gift these to family members or, you know, friends uh, that had children and this would be used to go towards a personal goal that that child had set out, a personal financial goal that that child had set out. Now, with the introduction of these cashola cards, uh, again, children have the means to go out into the world and make smart choices in regards to the way that you know maybe they purchase movie tickets, maybe they pay for their own cell phone bill, however else have you, how they handle and manage their allowance, right? So now you don't have to put, you know, everything in a Nike shoebox. You got your cashola card um, and you can figure it out from, from there. But given the fact that this offering now exists, individuals now have a new way to interact with the funds that they're receiving from family members. And it's actually very unique how the individuals will be able to to use the funds that they're that are actually on their account. Because parents, as you were mentioning, can set up goals on the goal setter app in the form of interactive quizzes, right? That this <laughs> that their children then have to pass, right? So if you didn't pass the quiz this week on what are like interest rates or how should interest rates be perceived, then you're not going to be able to tap into the allowance money that your parents gave you this week. So I think it's actually a very interesting concept. Um, and then of course, in addition to these quizzes, there is the ability to set up, you know, broader goals for a family. So let's say that your kid has asked you for a car on their 16th birthday, right? And they're they're nine years old right now, but they love cars. Like that's just something that they want, right? So now you have a seven-year roadmap to kind of build up to that goal and you can put uh, money away in a variety of ways. One way is rounding off the purchases that you make as a parent, um, but also the child themselves can add into this goal. They can set aside money from their cashola cards or you can invite other members from either your family or individuals in your close friend group to join your goal setter family and they too can contribute to these goals. Maybe it's not a car. Maybe it's something as simple as a, a trip to Disney World, right? But again, you can really begin to think about all of the different ways that the goal setter app can be leveraged such that individuals, again, have a more positive relationship to personal finance. And with that, I'm going to also, before I give it right back over to George, speak to how Goal Setter makes money. So those gold cards are a very core aspect of this. So they charge a dollar for every gold card that's sent through the platform. So in the instance that you want to give someone, you know, $25, $30, $40, um, you send them over that gold card, uh, Goal Setter is going to charge you a dollar for that. Um, but then additionally, they also accept payment from the families that are leveraging this service on a month-to-month -month basis. Now, typically the way this works with a, a normal debit card is that you pay a flat $5 service charge fee in order to ensure that you can continue to use the card. However, Goal Setter understands the unique socioeconomic background of the individuals that are pro or 
oftentimes leveraging these resources, again, low to moderate income families. So in an effort to ensure that they aren't pushed away from the service, Goalsetter adopted a pay a what you think is fair type model, right? So in the instance that you know you, you aren't able to have that $5 every month, um, you can pay something that's much smaller than that and still be able to leverage the service until you reach a point where you're able to contribute that and it's not a problem at all, right? So I think the heart is definitely in the right place in regards to this offer. And I'm very interested to see how it continues to scale moving forward. But I want to go ahead and pass it back to you um, to hear, you know, what has been some of the framing around the investors that have decided to get behind this offering? Absolutely, Steph. Yeah, it's it's been receiving some traction lately, right? Like, $3.9 million seed round. Some of the players involved, PNC Bank, MasterCard, U.S. Bank, Northwestern Mutual Futures Ventures, Elevate Capital, Portfolios First Step, and Rising America Fund and Pipeline Angels. And in regards to individual investors, Robert F. Smith from Vista Equities got involved. Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, Baron Davis, Sterling K. Brown, Ryan Baft, CC Sabathia, and Amber Sabathia. I mean, it's it's just gained a lot of traction, and I think that the great thing about this is it's not only catered to kids, but it's catered to families. Parents are involved, and so they 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 created a way in which. They can include parents into how kids are gauging the importance of financial literacy. But not only that, it forces parents to learn financial literacy themselves. Mm-hmm. The the education that they didn't receive or they may have not gotten growing up from their parents and their families. So I think that this definitely sets precedence. But not only that, I, I do believe that there is a boom within the financial education subdivision of EdTech. So I want to see how they fend off with other competitors in this space, like Step or Current, Greenlight, N26, Monzo, Revolt, Osper, FamZoo, Simple Finance, just to name a few. And there's also a sleeper in this space too, Kitty Credit, where they plan to teach people the importance of credit and how they plan to integrate that among schools from a young age. So I I do believe that financial literacy is is imperative. I do believe that uh, we need more of of this education um, because these kids could easily avoid the pitfalls that we had to suffer or go through or even endure when we were coming up. So uh, shout out to Goldsetter and, and other players in this space for making this happen. And with that, I'll turn into our third segment of the day, which is VC Money Moves. And this is where we are discussing the activities that are occurring in the venture capital space. We're going to talk about Link, and they're offering a knowledge as a service platform that connects clients with over 840,000 experts in a wide range of fields. How you feel about this one, Steph? Yeah, I think this is actually really interesting. So Link connects individuals, more specifically businesses of all sizes to knowledge experts on various topics. You can think of things like blockchain, virtual reality, and even electric vehicles. Uh, The belief behind these connections is one that businesses are better able to get the answers they need without having to comb through you know, vast sources of data and then cross-checking and validating that data to really make sure it's true and relevant. And two, large corporations have continuously leveraged internal systems of expert networks for years to be able to come up with really pointed insights around how they should be framing certain strategic decisions. So given that that's the case, it's very likely that smaller players who don't have access to such networks would also find value from these interactions 
and would purchase the opportunity to speak with said experts if given the option. And this is really what Link, or rather this is really where Link comes into play because it serves as the platform that lets businesses of all sizes cut through the noise and connect with experts that have those critical insights. Now, with regards to who founded the company, Link was founded by Peggy Choi in 2015, and the company is currently based out of Singapore and Hong Kong. Peggy was a graduate from Wharton, where she studied computer science and economics. After leaving undergrad, she had a six-year career in finance, starting at Goldman Sachs and ending at TPG, before serving as an advisor in Singapore for three years, supporting product development of Google Earth. So definitely a very extensive background in both finance and technology that ultimately led to some of her involvement around the creation of Link. Now, with that that background, I'm going to go ahead and hand it back over to you, George, to hear about your views on this new service. Yes, I think that it's definitely an interesting service, for sure. Them raising a $30 million round, I mean, that, that, that's no small feat. Kudos to them. They have more than 200 employees across offices in eight different cities, and th their funding will be utilized for product launches and for them to expand in North America and China, where it's seen demand grow over the past 12 months. Not only that, their platform Link Answers is currently used by about 200 enterprise clients when their employees need to do in-depth research for projects, including geographical expansion and product market fit and due diligence, which many rely on a platform for on the ground research in areas that they can't travel to because of the pandemic, which is clearly huge, right? Because now that that brings a whole sense of awareness um, on places where they have COVID traveling restrictions. Um, so I want to see how that would go forward post-COVID um, and how that would bring even more exposure. And they're also using this platform to address certain geopolitical changes within uh, these spaces. So yeah, I, I'm definitely interested to see how Link moves forward. They, in regards to monetization, uh, they sort of gain that that traction by charging enterprise clients a subscription fee. Um, and that fills the gap between traditional consultancies and consumer-oriented um, Q&A platforms like Quora and and or China's uh, Zihilu. So definitely excited to see how they continue to grow. And um, yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting platform for sure. In complete agreement here. And I think, you know, in terms of who's invested thus far, it's, or rather who's been participating in this, this last round. Uh, the company Series B was led by Brewer Lane Ventures and Mass Mutual Ventures. And it, there also was participation from Alibaba's Entrepreneurs Fund. Uh, in regards to the two firms that led this round, Mass Mutual Ventures describes itself as a return-focused corporate venture capital fund which leverages the operating expertise of mass mutual executives to help firms scale across the spaces of enterprise security, financial technology, cybersecurity, and digital health. While Brewer Lane explains that it is a fund that is focused on offerings that leverage technology to improve people's lives in the industries of fintech and insurtech. They specifically target startups that transform these two markets for both companies and consumers. Now, in terms of Link's long-term vision to serve as the de facto source for expert information, I think this is incredibly interesting. And Peggy has recently explained in a, I believe this was a TechCrunch article, that the hope is to get to a point where business professionals of all forms are turning to link to source insight as opposed to sources like Google. Now, with that, we're going to go ahead and introduce the next topic. And here we have Calendly, Calendly, which closes a $350 million investment round. George, how do you feel about this startup from Atlanta? It's definitely intriguing stuff. Tope has an interesting background, comes from Lagos, Nigeria, and he was also part of a, a middle-class household. His mother held a chief pharmacist position for the Nigerian Central Bank, 
and his father worked for Unilever. But adversity started to play heavily in his life. Uh, when he was 12, his father was murdered in front of him during a carjacking. Rest in peace. That That's unfortunate. Then his family ended up moving to the U.S. sometime after that. And since then, his mother also passed away. So uh, psychologically, I can only imagine what that kind of effect played on him and his life. But it only allowed him to move forward. And he maneuvered through, right? He ended up moving to Atlanta, uh, which is now <laughs> noticed as a potential tech startup ecosystem. And um, as he went off to school, went to high school, ended up going to the University of Georgia, where he uh, majored in management information systems, worked for a bit, um, was always interested in tech and wanted to change the game in regards to seeing how he could uh, figure out an option to improve uh, cashiers, right? Or cash registers. And then fast forwarding to now building Calendly. Calendly is, is a startup that uh, was under the radar, uh, raised some funds, right? But they really started to gain traction because of the whole COVID effect. They, they have their, their price ranges from free, um, which is one calendar, one user, one event to premium, uh, which is $8 a month and pro, which is $12 a month for more calendars, events, integrations and features with bigger packages for enterprises also available. So, yeah, I think that uh, they'll continue to scale. I'm very excited for him, but I'll pass it back to you, Steph, for, for more. Yeah, I think the interesting thing to note here with Topay was that he was able to still make progress with the startup, even despite the fact that he was denied VC funding initially. Um, so so he actually went to fairly extreme ends. He drained all his bank accounts. He tapped into his 401k. He drained those, maxed out several credit cards. And it was through those efforts and making each and every last dollar count uh, that Topay was able to ultimately get to a point in in July of 2019, where the company was pulling in $30 million in revenue on a yearly basis, again, without a single dollar of VC investment. Fast forward from there to 2020 of just last fall, and due to the effects of the pandemic, which you've already cited, the company was able to grow revenue 100%, over 100%, to now $70 million, again, without a single dollar of VC investment. And at that point, here is now where we come back to VCs beginning to want to re-enter the conversation and figure out, you know, how can we help you reach, you know, your next targets? How can we provide the capital and the liquidity that you need to be able to make the choices that you want to now delve into as a black founder, right? So it was it was very interesting, especially from the standpoint of Tope to see this difference, right? To see in the beginning where, you know, he was able to have a working product. He was able to be able to pull in customers. He was able to really provide something that he knew was going to be able to hit the ground running if it had that support um, to now have all of those offers come back again and um, state that, oh, you know, here we, we've been here all of, along. So uh, Tope did ultimately decide to partner with OpenView Ventures and Iconic, who ultimately were a part of the you know most recent $350 million raise. But I think the the more interesting aspect to to see here is that you know Tope acknowledged throughout this process that he faced difficulty as a black founder. And this was spoken most, this was highlighted the most in his 2019 interview with Inc. Uh, magazine. That's when, you know, it, it really came to surface that, you know, this had had an effect on Tope and 
he was actually at that point very happy about the fact that he hadn't needed to, to leverage um, VC funding. However, now to get to the new goals, to get to this billion dollar marker, he understands that VC funding will need to be leveraged. But um, what what also was interesting in this transformation from that interview to, the, to today is that initially Tope believed that, you know, this this success in this space was largely going to be a matter of, you know, financial independence, that this was really what this was going to be about to, to securing the bag, whatever else have you. But now after having these interactions, after seeing the effect that, you know, he's had on this space, especially as a black founder, he now wants to serve as a source of inspiration for other women, men, and people of color who do not fit predetermined so I, I think it's actually a really interesting story here. I think he was able to make the most of a, of a pretty uh, rough situation and still find a way to succeed um, throughout the madness of everything. And one interesting aspect um, to note here as well is that uh, Tope is not a coder, right? Tope outsourced mm. his software development to the Ukraine. Right. And that's important because the the area of the Ukraine that he outsourced his development to was the very same area that was invaded by Russia. Right. Mm. And, and had, uh, you know, a, a very strong Russian military presence, um, which which could have meant, again, disaster for Tope. But it, it speaks again to how he's been able to manage risk throughout the extent of his career as a founder and and really be able to rise to each and every occasion and make strategic choices that still allows Callan Lee to come out on top. But that's that's how I'm framing it. That's how I'm viewing it. That's how I, I saw this 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 latest deal. Um, but definitely gonna hand it back to you, George, for for your thoughts here. Yeah. And a lot of times you know being the startup founder stuff is interesting that you say that because they stress the notion of people using a technical co-founder or founder or having a technical team. So him being able to raise that while outsourcing his his technical uh, developers, right, if you will, mm-hmm. speaks a lot of volumes and him going through this journey. Uh, is again, it's definitely not easy. So I, I tip my hat off to him. And roughly 10 million people are on Calendly on a monthly basis, with the number growing from a thousand and 180. Yeah. So one one thing I noticed is that it, it's grown for from a thousand and 180 percent over the last year. Uh, and they've been growing users on a month-to-month basis. So definitely excited for Tope. Congrats to him on, on that raise. And, and we would love to stick around and see what plays out in the future. All definitely great facts. And uh, here's hoping that there are, are more individuals from our community that are able to secure funding, um, able to create these offerings, and, and really able to show future generations that there is the capacity to introduce services and products to the market um, that have value, that will be leveraged, um, and you will not be impeded from that goal based on your skin or socioeconomic background. So with that, we're going to go ahead and transition into the level up. You know, here on Dream Shakers, we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to engage in these spaces as well. We want to make sure that you have the opportunity to win. You have the opportunity to boost your skills and really enter these spaces that we cover on a weekly basis. So to kick things off, we have the Microsoft Explore program. Now, this one, I try to always make sure that these internship opportunities have been posted within the last week. This one has been posted within the past week, right? It, it has, it has, but we 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 closer to that eight day mark than we are that seven day mark. But I thought that this opportunity was too good to pass up because it's one of those explore programs, right? And it's really targeted at students that are either freshmen 
or sophomores in college that want to have exposure to the main phases of product development. So this is really great if you're pursuing a major in computer science, computer engineering, software engineering, or any other related technical major. The internship is going to be full-time. It's going to be based out of San Francisco, and it's going to take place again over the course of 12 weeks. Now, the next opportunity I have is for HBO. And here we're looking at a content and strategy planning intern. Now, HBO is definitely a digital company. You know about that HBO Max. That deal just cleared with Roku. They definitely going to continue to produce content. And what you want to notice here is that for this opportunity, you're going to be supporting day-to-day administrative processes for HBO's Max's content creation teams. Now, the requirements for these roles is for a passion for TV, entertainment, and pop culture, attention to detail, strong written and verbal communication skills. And those are going to be some of the points of being able to take on this role. So if you have those things, you're in good company. Now, the next piece is that the program is open to all students as long as you're not graduating before August 2021. And this opportunity will be based out of New York City. Finally, we have another company based out of Atlanta in the form of MailChimp, and they're looking for product management interns. Now, the intern, or rather the intern, is going to be working across the marketing design and engineering teams and will largely support product managers as they work to successfully deliver digital products. The requirements for this role is strong analysis skills, the ability to troubleshoot, and the ability to problem solve effectively, the ability to build relationships, be persuasive and influential, and work across teams of various working groups is also going to be something that they are looking for. The internship is going to be based out of Atlanta and has a two-start date approach, right? You could either start in May 17th or June 7th, again, based off of when you end college or rather when you end that semester. Now, aside from these three internship opportunities, we also have two new platforms to share with you, our audience, this week. If, again, you're looking for ways to expand your network or continue your professional development. The first is On My Way Up Up. And this is a platform that aims to provide Black and Latinx college students and young professionals opportunities, resources, and a community to leverage in the process of professional development such that they can enable their socioeconomic mobility. Major shout outs to Emmeline Velez who created this product or created this platform. She's changing the game and she's putting our people on a free game. Facts. And you can check it out on IG at on my way dot up up and that's omw dot up up by the way she's from the bronx too she's definitely thorough absolutely next up we have melena vision (laughs) and this is a digital career platform designed to help young overlooked black and brown professionals create positive career clarity this organization curates events content, and connections to help people succeed and drive career clarity. Again, big theme. Shout out to Jalissa slash Juju, who created this platform. She's a founder and CEO. And shout out to Magic Washington, who put us on to this opportunity. We appreciate you both. And they're also on Clubhouse, so make sure you sign up. And they can be found on IG at Vision, which is spelled M I. L-L-E-N-I-V-I-S-I-O-N. And we're going to be providing links in the show notes as we always do. So with that, I'm going to give it back to George and he's going to close us out. Thank you again for tuning in. We appreciate you all. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Stay COVID free. And we'll see you on the next episode. 